are entering the Freedom Hut. A horrific mass shooting targeting Muslims in New Zealand has politics inflamed in this country. We'll talk about what this terrorist was trying to accomplish, what we can do to stop future acts like this, and also all the latest from politics here in the swamp and on Capitol Hill. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. This was an attack aimed deliberately at Muslims. A gunman live streaming the massacre via a camera mounted on his head. We are not showing any of that video at this point, but I have watched it for the sake of our reporting. It shows the gunman driving calmly toward a mosque, playing music, talking to himself, saying, let's get this party started. He then takes weapons from his trunk. He walks toward the mosque, which was filling up for Friday prayers. He opens fire, gunning down at least two men at the doorway. Then he walks inside. He shoots every single person he can see. He reloads several times and at one point goes back into a room where two large groups are laying on the floor, many of them clearly already dead, some just wounded. And he walks calmly around taking kill shots, finishing off his victims with head or body shots. It's a tragic day for the whole world today because of what has happened here in, in New Zealand. Um, people are understandably um, rattled, shocked, outraged, furious. 49 people dead at prayer, Forty, over 40 people wounded. Um, and clearly this is one of these national international news stories that is going to uh, force a lot of conversations some of them constructive most of them not though Uh, within minutes of this incident first coming up within minutes of this first becoming something that people uh, were, were talking about there was an effort to begin to to pin to pin blame to find you know the blame should be pretty straightforward in these situations and I think you all know what it is. The shooter, the terrorist, the person who engages in these violent acts is the person that we all should first and foremost think about as the one deserving of blame. They're now uh, in custody. There are a few people in custody in New Zealand. But we didn't even have the details in fully on this. We did not have all that much information when it came about that you had some of the most prominent Democrat politicians in the country deciding that they would find a way to make this about Trump, that this was Trump's fault. Now, I read through the entire manifesto of the shooter, uh, as is becoming a, a custom of people in the media now. I don't know how useful it really is. I, I don't know that it will work, although there is some research to show that these mass shooters uh, crave fame and attention, and so the more you give them, the likelier there'll be other people that follow in their footsteps. But uh, I, I, So I won't name him. I'm, I, I don't feel particularly strongly about naming one way or the other, but 
there's there seems to be a, a movement among people in the media that I that I respect and that I think have good judgment to try to avoid just repeating over and over again the name of the person who is responsible for this. And I did, however, read the manifesto. And there were parts in it that were seized upon immediately by Democrats and by the mainstream media in this country as a, see, this is tied to the right. The guy said that he did not like Trump's policies at all, but he likes Trump as a symbol of white nationalism, something along those lines. He also had a bizarre reference in his manifesto, which has been making a lot of, this reference in particular has gotten a lot of attention today, to Candace Owens, who I know her work. I know Candace a little bit. I've worked with her before. She has nothing to do with targeting Muslims or violence or any, I mean, it's just, the guy might as well have said, the you know, a person whose work I really admire is... Uh, you know, Luciano Pavarotti. I mean, it has nothing to do with anything. But people seized on that and they tried to say that you know, this is just indicative of the way that the right wing is fanning these flames of resentment and, and violence. You know, let's, let's now take a look. Let, let's step back from what the, the media narrative is of this and try to get to, to a bit more of, of what the truth is here. Uh, there are billions of people in the world um, the, the truth is that mass shootings on a percentage basis around the world are actually are actually quite rare, and that a shooting like this by a self-described white nationalist, as horrific and uh, and deeply disturbing as it is, is fortunately also very rare. This shooter viewed Anders Breivik, who was the uh, the shooter in in what was it Norway some years ago as an inspiration for him. Uh, Breivik was, I think, almost a decade ago now. This is a rarity. doesn't mean it's not horrible. It doesn't mean that there won't be uh, and should not be follow-on consequences and conversations to this. But the effort to make this somehow Donald Trump's fault is just unfair in every respect. Uh, the, the media and the people in the media who are uh, and the different the different outlets who are taking this as an opportunity to score cheap points against President Trump, I, I think they do a disservice to everyone right now because there are some things that are not political at all. There are some things that aren't about where you stand on the U.S. or any other political spectrum, really. It's just about being a, a human being. And no person who is decent, who is moral, who is in his or her right mind, um, has anything but contempt for somebody who would go into a house of a worship, a house of prayer, and gun down completely innocent and totally helpless people. Instead of uniting in this country in, in condemnation of what happened here, there has been a very clear, immediate backlash against uh, anybody who is a political target of the left. Um, they are playing this, this game that I've seen many times before. Whenever there is jihadist terrorism, they immediately want to explain to us all that, the, that jihadists are a very small percentage, that this is not the true Islam, that it has nothing to do with Islam. And I actually think there's a much more 
in-depth conversation to be had about whether it has to do with Islam or not and whether, you know, there's there's real discussion to be had there. And the left never wants to have it. They say even bringing that up is is racist. You know, when Obama said famously, the Islamic State is neither Islamic nor a state, uh, you know, that that's that was a very debatable pro- uh, proposition. And there are a lot of groups all over the world that seem confused and regimes that run whole countries that seem confused about what the true Islam is. Um, that's not to say that Muslims around the world are all radicals, quite the quite the opposite. Ninety nine percent, ninety nine plus percent of them are just folks like you and me just trying to, you know, take care of the families, feed the kids, go about their day to day lives. But an ideology of over a billion people is going to have, unfortunately, even with a very small percentage, a large contingent of radicals that can be very disruptive, as we saw, as we have seen in recent years, and and horrifically destructive, as we saw on 9-11. White nationalists, as a a terror group, are, are, in my view, exaggerated as a threat in most public discourse and most of the the news media's mind. Um, And the notion that Donald Trump is somehow a white nationalist, I mean, this is a guy who is is born and raised in in, in New York City, and no one ever thought he was a white nationalist until he ran for president, and now they really think this. I don't know if they believe it or if it's just useful for them to pretend on the front page of the Washington Post right now, Trump downplays the risk of white nationalism. Quote, it's a small group of people. That's what the Washington Post is saying. The truth is, it is a small group of people. You know, I work in conservative media. I know a lot of very hardline right-wingers. A lot of them are my friends. And we all have absolute contempt for white nationalists, neo-Nazis, anybody like that. Uh, we think that not only we, we have contempt for them, we think they're losers. Uh, we think they're idiots. They don't know anything. Their ideology is uh, really just based on resentment of, of everything because their lives aren't what they think they should be. And so they look for answers. They look for explanations for that. Uh, but there is no global support for white nationalism. There, there is no global threat of white nationalism taking over a country you know, look what you have in Iran. Look what you had in the Islamic State in Syria. Look what you've had in Afghanistan and these other places. White nationalism is not about to take over a country and maybe get nukes. And these are not equivalent forces for global destabilization and, and for violence and causing violence around the world. They're not even uh, they're not even close. But right now, what we're being told is that President Trump is in some way partially responsible for this and it's so deeply destructive and the people who are saying it should be ashamed of themselves because there's nothing to back this up whatsoever Um, but they know that the the hatred of this president is such that they won't even give him they won't even give him the uh the good faith of what is obviously the case that president trump hates what happened in new zealand despises this shooter and were it in his powers commander-in-chief would have done anything and everything to stop this person but of course this was on new zealand soil, not on u.s soil uh and 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 that they don't believe that um is is deeply troubling to me that the left um thinks that this is an opportunity to tear down this president and that's really their their first 
inclination. And not just President Trump, by the way, there are other targets that have also come under attack from the left that have nothing to do with this uh, this terrible event, this, this mass shooting in New Zealand. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has written, she wrote on Twitter, that thoughts and prayers is a reference to the NRA's, NRA's phrase used to deflect conversation away from policy change during tragedies. That, that is so insidious and incorrect and stupid, it's hard to know where to start. Thoughts and prayers, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, is a reference to thoughts and prayers. It's a reference to people wanting to send you know, their, their prayers of, of God's grace and support and help to individuals in a terrible circumstance and to the families left behind. And it's an expression of basic human solidarity and goodwill and decency. Thoughts and prayers is not an NRA phrase used to stop policy solutions, to stop gun violence. New Zealand has almost no gun violence as a country. Has less than less than 50 murders a year in a country of 5 million. There's almost no gun violence in New Zealand anyway. So what is the what is the policy solution supposed to be for a case like this? Don't allow a mass murderer to be a mass murderer and, and to ever exist in the first place. I mean, his manifesto is a, a rambling and incoherent mess of bitterness and hatred and disdain for his fellow human beings. And yet we're supposed to think that he is connected to American conservatism, or he doesn't like conservatives. He even says it in the manifesto. He doesn't like Trump on policy. He says in the manifesto. I, I read the whole thing today. It's about 70 pages. He's a racist. He's a, a true white nationalist racist. He's a, a, a disgusting discredit to humanity. Uh, and he killed all these people today in the mosque, and it's horrible, and I wish that Somebody had been able to to intervene even sooner. It, it is worth it is worth I think noting that a uh, the reports at least so far that I've seen are that a uh, a Muslim man who was a, a legal gun owner did manage to return fire on them and may have saved a lot of lives in the process. So a a uh, a Muslim hero did step up here. I just wish he you know could have been there at the very beginning and stopped this whole thing and put two in this shooter's head before he was able to hurt anyone. But there was there was action, uh, there was heroism, and you know I, I don't know. I've thought about whether I would watch the video. I've just seen so many of these terrorist videos and beheadings and tortures and everything, and and it stays with you. And I, I think we all know, and I think that the shooter wants us to watch. And I don't know if that really adds a necessary context to it. There are no solutions. I don't have any solutions for you. People say, "Buck, you worked in counterterrorism. What should we do?" There's evil in the world, my friends. There are evil people who will do evil things. Sometimes it'll be in the form of a mass shooting. Sometimes it will be in the form of a bombing or it will be a, a militia that goes into a village and slaughters everybody or it will be a systematic torture of political opponents or there is evil in this world. The choice that we make every day is in our own way, do we fight against it? Do we do what we can 
to make sure that evil does not triumph. You have a role to play in this. I have a role to play in this. All of us do every day. Are we kind? Are we decent? Are we honorable? Do we treat each other well? Do we stand up for one another? Do we show bravery? Do we have integrity? That's how we fight evil. Doesn't mean you're going to eliminate it. Doesn't mean we're going to win every battle. But we do the best we can. And to those on the other side of the world who are mourning right now, we do send thoughts and prayers. We'll be right back. Uh, and who is going to be the boogeyman of the next 10 to 20 years? Who's going to be the great rival to the United States in the eyes of American society? China, that's right. And so what do you think the attitude is going to be over time for the shrinking, insecure white majority that's losing their jobs for, let's say, Chinese Americans or Asian Americans? I, I don't, I'm like, I personally, I said to a group at Harvard, I think we're one generation away from falling into the same camps as the Jews who were attacked in the synagogue in Pittsburgh like uh, just a couple months ago. It's like we're probably one generation away from Americans shooting up a bunch of Asians saying like, you know, damn the Chinese because there, there's a giant Cold War or even more with China. That is the great danger that I fear that my children are going to grow up in. That's Andrew Yang, who's a uh, presidential candidate. He's concerned that the competition with China is going to lead to people going in and, and, and shooting, uh, shooting Asian, Asian Americans, um, shooting up Asian churches. You know, this, this, this is not helpful. I mean, what you're hearing from people now, what you're hearing from Democrats is, is not in any way uh, adding anything into this conversation that will help avert something like this in the future, that will help heal this shooter wanted to create divisions. That is what he wanted to do. It was explicit in his very uh, manifesto. And by acting like this is somehow the fault of conservatives in America, they are giving the shooter exactly what he wanted to accomplish from this other than the horrific mass carnage. This guy was a terrorist. Let's not give the terrorist what he wants. We'll be back. Why pay your hard-earned money to join an organization that fought tooth and nail for a government-run healthcare system? One that scripted portions of White House speeches behind closed doors to ensure the passage of the Affordable Care Act. The organization that stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners. You know, that's AARP. Join AMAC instead, the conservative alternative. AMAC offers the same kinds of money-saving benefits of AARP without the liberal agenda. Become an AMAC member right now at amac.us slash buck. AMAC fights for your values, protecting our borders by enforcing common sense immigration laws, supporting small business, and standing up for your individual God-given freedoms. AMAC is the way to go. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know enough about it yet. They're just learning about the person and the people involved. Uh, but it's a, certainly a terrible thing. Terrible thing. It is a small group of people. When you look at 
the grand scheme of things, uh, th- this violent white nationalists who engage in, in terrorism on a global scale, it is a very small group of people, but the president gets a, a lot of um, a, lo- a lot of heat for this. People want they want to believe that there is some connection to uh, to President Trump. They want to believe that he is because uh, of his rhetoric. He's the reason that this is going on. He said, I think it's a small group of people that have very, very serious problems. Yeah, that's right. That is true. And I've been seeing, and I I, I haven't been able to watch some of them because I'm on air with you, but there have been some panels on CNN in the last hour where they're just all coming up with ways that, you know, Trump's rhetoric inspires this and Trump, uh, Trump gives cover to these white nationalists. And, you know, Trump has said that white nationalists are losers. He says that they're, uh, that they're a joke, that they're bad people. Doesn't matter what he says, though, they're still going to take this position that Trump is in some way a, a white nationalist sympathizer or, you know, he's created this this new environment where white nationalists can thrive. And I'm going to just note that whenever whenever we talk about ra- radical Islamic terrorism, the, the script is entirely flipped. It's it's not the fault of the ideology. It's not the fault of of anyone on the left for being weak on on dealing with radical Islam. You know, and in fact, they'll often say that the reason for radical Islamic terrorism is because of the insufficiently. uh, What's the word? Uh, The the insufficient desire to cave in and do what Islamists want or the inability or the unwillingness of European countries to better assimilate their European I mean, there are uh, Islamic minorities in Europe. That's that's always a part of that debate as well. Uh, so I, I don't have much more to share with you on this on this shooting because you know, the the prime minister of New Zealand says that gun laws will change. New Zealand already has pretty strict gun laws. Uh, they don't have a full registration uh, the way that the way that Australia does. Keep in mind that you won't read this in the news coverage of this at all. But Australia's buyback program is always listed as being so successful. Uh, after a mass shooting in Australia, they did a buyback, a forced buyback, which is confiscation with compensation. That's what that is. And yes, there was a decline in violence in Australia, but guess what? There are now more guns in circulation in Australia in private hands than there were before the buyback program. And there is less violence. So someone would need to explain to me how the buyback program is the cause for this drop in violence when there are even more guns now in private hands. Uh, look, there's the, the emotions that people have after a mass shooting like this are such that they want to take action, especially people who believe that their their political positions are an extension of their goodness or their worthiness as a, as a person. And they also, it, it fits in with a, a view of how we should relate to our states, how we should relate to our federal government, um, such that guns are a little private rebellion in the hands of citizens. Every gun in the hands of a law-abiding citizen is a private rebellion against the authority of the state. They know that, and people are uncomfortable with that. A lot of people do not like that. Uh, the left in this country has really made guns uh, a dividing issue for culture as much as for the Second Amendment. Uh, the manifesto writer understood this. In fact, he wants this to create in his manifesto. He said he wanted this to create a Second Amendment uh, battle in the United States that would further divide the country and would lead to conflict and 
civil war here. I mean, the guy's a, the guy's a loon, too. Let's remember that. I mean, the guy's a loon. But there's now this big debate, this big discussion about gun control and what we can do next for gun control. And I'm sure Democrats will seize on this. And, and I'll tell you this as well. Nothing in this country, I think, will change. It's just not going to. Why also would anything, why, why would our laws change in response to what happened in New Zealand? Uh, there are still calls for this from Democrats because it's such an emotional issue today and because people are obviously so psychologically wounded by this. But what what exactly are we supposed to do? Um, we, we have different laws than New Zealand. We have a different gun situation. We have a different constitution than New Zealand. Um, and yet we're still going to be told that there needs to be immediate action. And if you stand against it, if you think that uh, action that will help no one and will infringe on rights is a bad idea. They're going to say, you're a bad person. You're a bad person. That's where this is all going next. Because remember, gun control efforts from the left, it's not just about the guns. It's about their contempt for the people who own guns. They don't like gun owners. It is a separation between right and left now in this country. If you own a gun, the overwhelming likelihood is that you are more conservative, more likely to be conservative. That's just the way it is. I want to switch to the border just for a second here because... And we got a whole bunch of other topics. We're talking about Beto, Klobuchar, more Democrat candidates out there in the mix. We'll, we'll have the latest on the cheating scandal with uh, my friend Jesse Kelly. He'll join later on the show. Just to, you know, we're going to need to lighten things up a little bit, right? It's it's obviously been a uh, an emotionally draining day in the news cycle, and and I I know it's Friday. We're going to have Jesse join us. We'll have some fun. We'll do some roll call. So things will definitely move in that direction as we move along in the show. But I have to note, this was a, a piece today in the in the Daily Mail that Trump's border agency says he has built zero new walls despite claiming otherwise for months as the president prepares to veto lawmakers' attempt. Well, he did already veto. So, so the veto happened. The presidential veto happened. But now you are starting to see U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, just coming out and saying, look, we, we, people should know what's really going on here. And there is not new barrier that is going up. There, there's better barrier where there already is some kind of a physical structure to prevent illegal crossings. But there is not a on a massive scale, a lot of new barrier construction that is happening. It's just not happening. And I, I, this is where, you know, President Trump's salesmanship, I think, can be a little bit of a a little bit of a liability because he wants to say that it's happening because he wants to keep people engaged and he wants to build the wall. And, and I, I think that he given his given his druthers, he would follow through on that promise. But it hasn't happened yet. And I don't believe that we can be supportive of the president saying that it is happening when it is not. That's why when he tweeted out that wacky nutjob Ann Coulter, who still hasn't figured out that despite all odds, an entire Democrat party of far-left Democrats against me, including Republicans who are sadly unwilling to fight, I am winning on the border. Major sections of wall are being built and renovated with much more to follow shortly. Tens of thousands of illegals are being apprehended at the border. And it's just like responding, okay, tell me where this new border fence is. Give me the, the latitude and longitude. Tell me exactly where the new border fence is. Uh, I got to tell you, on, on this one, Ms. Coulter raises a very important point, and we need the president to stay focused on this and follow through. Uh, we also have a whole lot more show coming up for you, team, in just a moment, so uh, stay with me. 
Today's votes cap a week of something the American people haven't seen enough of in the past two years. Both parties in the United States Congress standing up to Donald Trump. In two days, Congress has delivered three, three major rebukes to the president and stood up for transparency, accountability, and the constitutional powers. I'm sorry, my stomach just turns a little bit when you got Chuck Schumer talking about transparency, the separation of powers, as if he cares about any of that stuff. This is what the Republicans that voted uh, against Trump and with the Democrats on this resolution, this is what they've done. They've given the Democrats a victory lap opportunity here. And for what? It's certainly not smart. It's certainly not smart from the perspective of enacting the Trump agenda. And it, it gives Chuck Schumer this moment where he gets to point out the divisions on the Republican side. Look, Trump's already he's vetoed this thing, so it doesn't doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't mean anything, doesn't do anything. But I find it just beyond uh, beyond irritating when you have someone like Chuck Schumer who gets to have some fun at the expense of the fractured Republican Party because you've got some Republicans that their first concern really and truly is how they uh, how they appear, not just to their constituents, but to the media. I think you get a lot of Republicans that don't really um, don't really care as much about what this means for them back home in the short term as they do about what the what the mainstream will say about them. And then that brings me to this. And this is courtesy of our friend Sean Davis over at The Federalist, that Bill Priestap, the top FBI counterintelligence official, told a federal court last August in a sworn declaration that John McCain passed the Steele dossier to James Comey on December 9th, 2016, and that the FBI briefed Obama on it, even though the FBI had not verified its claims. The Steele dossier was an orchestrated media operation, Sean writes, from the beginning, and that everything done by Clapper and Comey was done to provide media an excuse to publish defamatory claims to damage Trump. I think that that is all correct. It is absolutely insane that James Comey took it upon himself in an intelligence briefing to present an unclassified, unsourced, unverified document to the president of the United States saying that he had you know, Russian prostitutes engaging in all kinds of reprehensible behavior with them, you know, I mean, you know, gross things. Uh, that was only done to create the perception that this is real. But I, I also have to wonder, I know that some people get very touchy about this, but uh, John McCain, why did John McCain pass the Steele dossier to James Comey in December of 2016 after the election? What, what is John McCain? Did he really think that it was real? Did he, did he think that that was uh, something that should be, should be done? I mean, why would he share opposition research on the president of the United States with the FBI director at the time. And why haven't we heard more about what Obama knew about all of this? Which he definitely did. And you, they always keep Obama out of this situation. They always pretend that o Obama had you know, no knowledge, didn't order anybody to do anything, and didn't, didn't know a thing about this whole dossier. And, um, I, I, I'm telling you, the behind the scenes here with these Democrats was 
unseemly doesn't even begin to cover it. But I also stopped and, and, and thought to myself, McCain, at so many different points, was willing to abandon his side at, at, a, at a key moment to help the Democrats. And in the aftermath of the election defeat of Hillary Clinton by a Republican nominee, that McCain would pass this to Comey, why didn't McCain... Let, let, let's really ask this. If McCain had the Steele dossier, why didn't he call for a private meeting with the President of the United States himself, man-to-man? Wouldn't that have been the honorable thing to do? It was already out there in circulation. There's not some sources and methods concern. There's no, I mean, it's the President of the United States. He can see anything, but this is an unclassified document that's circulating among the media and circulating among the media as part of a, of a plan by the Democrat operatives that created this whole thing to defame and destroy the President of the United States. But why wouldn't McCain say, Mr. President, I need to talk to you about something and, and sit down with him? Because if he believed this was real, why wouldn't John McCain do that? Why give it to James Comey and be a part of this scheme? This scheme to nullify the election defeat of Hillary Clinton by President Trump. Why? Everyone I know in politics feels very, they have very passionate feelings about John McCain. I know people that all they ever want to talk about is his honorable military service in Vietnam, and you know nobody questions that, nobody, nobody disputes that. I also know a lot of people who feel like his legacy is one of turning on Republicans at key moments and not being somebody that his own side could count on. And also, you want to talk about people that surrounded themselves with bad individuals from, during the campaign. I've, I've heard his campaign was, it was an absolute mess. And people have told me he was also, I don't know, I won't, I won't get further into it beyond that. But McCain, sure enough, shows up in this circumstance as someone who was part of this whole artifice, this whole scheme to create a Russia collusion narrative where there wasn't one. This was all just made up whole cloth. This, there, was not, there was nothing there. They, they, they made this like a fairy tale. And then they weaponize the intelligence community and the collection platforms that it has, all because they were so, so upset that Hillary Clinton wasn't going to be the president of the United States. This is the biggest scandal of my lifetime. And nothing, you know, Monica and, and you know, you name it. I mean, there's, there's no scandal that I have lived through in American politics that comes anywhere near what's going on here. And that the people who are at the heart of it not only won't be punished, but are going to be celebrated as some kind of heroes when what they did has, has torn at the, very, at the very fabric of this country as a place that has rule of law that isn't based in politics, that isn't based in what political party you happen to be a part of. It has undermined that in profound ways, and there will be no accountability for the men that did this. And Trump and his presidency, who knows what have been, would have been different if he hadn't had to carry around this burden. Who knows what would have happened if he had not been in a situation where he had the special counsel harassing him, haranguing him and the people around him, the legal bills, the anxiety, the lost sleep. 
the prospect of all of this just destroying whatever feelings of goodwill he could ever have from the other side or that, that the other side could have about him. And McCain was involved in it. I, I, think that, I think that people will look back on a lot of what John McCain did as a politician with far greater criticism than we have been allowed up to this point uh, when we have a bit of distance and honesty. Hour two is coming up. Whether you like Donald Trump or you dislike Donald Trump, the one thing that I think we can all agree on is that Donald Trump has made American journalism great again. The other thing we can agree on is that the media is not the enemy of the people. At CNN, our core mission is to tell the truth, to hold those in power accountable, even when it's uncomfortable, especially when it's uncomfortable. Last November, we made the most uncomfortable and easiest decision of my career. We sued the President of the United States for taking away the press credential of our Chief White House Correspondent, Jim Acosta. All because he didn't like the questions that Jim was asking him. We didn't pick that fight. We didn't want that fight. But the decision to fight for our right was easy. That's CNN Chief Jeff Zucker in a, a moment of preening and delusion or a few moments of it, talking about how Trump has made journalism great again. I, I think it's quite the opposite. I think Trump has exposed American journalism for the shallow cast of nasty, wannabe cool high school kids that all just want to sit at the same table, because I think that's what it really is. And I think that they have not learned any lessons. They do not care that... The general public doesn't believe them, does not trust them, does not think that they engage in their profession honestly. And the public should not think that they engage in their profession honestly because they don't. They are activists pretending to be journalists. And then CNN's Zucker complains a bit more about this. Seven. The president has treated our CNN journalists with disrespect on more than one occasion. The name calling and the insults are, sadly, something that has become the norm when covering him. We don't like it, and it is wrong. What we do has never been more important. This administration need not like what we say, but they should respect our right to say it. The president has treated our CNN journalists with disrespect on more than one occasion. The name calling and the insults are, Sadly, yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it. Has okay, become- so we heard, we heard that. So, is he just, is he just completely delusional? Because CNN journalists have been not just disrespectful to this president. CNN journalists have been at the heart of the effort to destroy this president. CNN journalists were the ones involved in the early days of leaking the meeting between Comey and Trump about the dossier. That big bag o lies known as the dossier they were hoping to turn it into a news story and they have been running with it ever since cnn has had to fire journalists for fabricating news stories about trump and the people around him doesn't seem to phase them one bit i guess how many news how many journalists did cnn have to fire for a hit piece on obama this pretense that zucker had there of 
We try to hold people to account. Well, they'll hold Republicans to account. They'll do more than that. They'll do everything in their power to destroy a Republican. They will try to ruin a presidency. They, they drunk with power and their own self-righteousness, are willing to lie, are willing to uh, stack the deck against a president, whether it's in a debate or just in their day-to-day news coverage. They will take an activist role in this whole situation. And then there's this latest addition to the many, many complaints of journalism about Trump that he puts lives at risk. Play clip eight. This administration has made it abundantly clear that they do not have respect for or tolerance of a free and independent press. They call us the enemy of the people. They limit our access. They selectively grant interviews, most often to outlets that have assured them that they will follow the script. Quite literally, they put our lives at risk with their words and their actions. That's just insane. They're not putting CNN journalists' lives at risk any more so than journalists who are spreading lies about Trump and his supporters are putting lives at risk when they you know, are, are saying the president's a traitor, guilty of treason, which they have done. They've asked this question. They, they, they've gone on TV and said, is the president a traitor? Well, wouldn't that mean that if you voted for him, you've supported a traitor? What if you still support that traitor? They take no responsibility for the toxic politicization that they have engaged in and and the political advocacy that they've done under the, the, the falsehood that this is journalism. They take no responsibility for this whatsoever. I mean, that's the head of CNN. He's one of the most powerful people in the news business in the world. And, you know, do you get the sense? Are we supposed to believe that CNN is fair to the president? The head of CNN is out there trashing the president on a regular basis, trashes Fox News as well. And let me tell you, in a state-run media environment, you don't have one outlet that is favorable to, you know, favorable to the regime in power and then a hundred that are just trying to destroy the regime in power all the time. That's, that's, not an, that's not an authoritarian regime situation. No, what's, much, what's a much greater threat to your liberty is when you have a united front of support for the regime from all of the different media outlets that will cover up the abuses, that won't dig deep, that don't want accountability. That's a far greater threat to liberty and freedom than one media outlet that gives voice to half the country, essentially. I mean, I do believe, I wish that there were uh, there, there was another channel like Fox out there just so that we'd have more bandwidth, so that there'd be more shows, there'd be more of a conservative voice and even more diverse Republican and, and conservative position in this country. You know, maybe, maybe a little more libertarian flavor in some of there too. You know, that I think that would be great. But we don't have that. What we have is a, a vast media conglomerate that all works together, that's really just a wing of the DNC and is doing everything it can to destroy a presidency. And I know some of these people, so I know that they, they want Donald Trump's children to go to prison. They want people like Manafort to die in prison for tax fraud. They think that's a good thing. I mean, the, what what happened? And you know, we've actually I actually got a a Democrat um, 
a, a Democrat former federal prosecutor to come on Rising today, and, and he was willing to admit, and I give him credit for this, that what Cyrus Vance in New York State did by adding the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, by adding charges when there are already two uh, guilty either verdicts or pleas from Manafort and two other federal trials for a 70-year-old man is just the most blatant politics imaginable. And what you know now from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is that if you're a high-profile Republican, you're not going to get a fair shake if you get you caught. Look what happened to Dinesh D'Souza. That was Preet Bharara. Oh, where did Preet Bharara, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, what did he do as soon as Trump got rid of him? Oh, he went to work at CNN and to start a podcast. That's right. He's a left-wing media guy. Well, he used to be able to determine how many decades you go to prison for for white-collar crime. That was his job. And Preet was a big fan of perp walks for white-collar criminals, people who were not in any way a physical danger to anyone. Barrara really wanted to parade them around. Why? Because it made him look tough on white-collar crime. And that's what he really cared about. That's what really got him excited. These people have no appreciation for how much damage they're doing to the good faith that a lot of us would like to have in these different institutions and these mechanisms of government, and yes, in the media. I would, I would think it was a fantastic thing if we had an honest news media. I mean, I can tell you that even, well, I was going to tell you some stories about some of the stuff I deal with in the media, but I don't have to hold on some of that. But the, the assumption... The assumption is that when you're in a newsroom, you're dealing most, unless you're at Fox or maybe the Wall Street Journal, a few other places, but when you're in your typical newsroom, most of the people in there are woke left-wingers. And so they don't just disagree with your point of view, but have this professional approach to what they're doing. They think that they are on a mission, a mission from the the, the depths of their own self-righteousness to destroy people who are on the other side, including people who work with them, who are colleagues of theirs, who are good people and who are just trying to do their job. You know, you, you, you cannot trust libs in the media, unfortunately. I, I wish, you know, some of them, you, know, you get to know well enough you can maybe trust, uh, but in general, it's a very unwise thing to do because they're zealots, they're true believers, and they control they control the narrative. They have the most outlets. And then they get Zucker to get up there and whine for them, talk about how their lives are at risk and Trump is so terrible and how could he do all these bad things? And I mean, J- Jim Acosta is some kind of American hero now. You've got to be kidding me, right? This is a joke. Unfortunately, it's not a joke. This is, this is how the mainstream media, all these pampered millionaires, this is how they see themselves. There's a legal sentence and there's a sentence of shame. Anytime he walks into a green room, which we have here at CNN for the next 20 years, whenever he gets out, he cannot look at a single member of the press corps, at a single politician, without shame. He can't walk out of a room again, regardless of whether he gets out of a jail, without shame. People in this town are going to dishonor him. So that's one of the favorite national security analysts over at CNN, Phil Mudd, talking about Manafort and Notice the real sense of of sanctimony, but also vindictiveness. Talking about how Manafort will feel shame. He's going to feel shame. Can't go into a green room with that. And this is the greatest fear for 
people that really like to do CNN is you're not going to be welcome in the CNN green room. Uh oh, that's really that's a scary universe to live in, right? You can't have that. Paul Manafort's going to prison for seven and a half years. He's a 70 year old man. He's going to serve that seven and a half. There's now the possibility of additional state charges hanging over his head. They're doing that just so that the president can't pardon him. So that's an end run on on the president's pardon power. It is explicitly and obviously political. It's disgraceful. What exactly did Manafort do that makes Phil Mudd so angry at him? What 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 is Manafort's great crime? Not not paying his taxes. I mean, he's making twenty five million dollars of restoration payments to the government. Okay, so he's paying the taxes and then some. I think that in most tax cases, that should be I mean, that should really be sufficient. I mean, if you can make the government whole and you can pay massive fines on top of it, maybe a six month sentence just as kind of a, you know, don't be naughty. But seven and a half years. Um, They hate Manafort because he worked for the president. He has become a scapegoat for all the rage they have. And and also, I think, all the intellectual insecurity that they try to suppress about Russia collusion that never happened. It didn't exist. But Manafort is now a, a, a convicted felon facing almost a decade in prison. So he's the one they direct all of their anger to. You know who else should be a convicted felon and, and in prison? Uh, or at least should have faced the possibility of being a convicted felon in prison? Hillary Clinton. I've not forgotten this. Why should we accept different standards of justice for the right and the left? Why should we accept that Democrats get away with everything? Republicans don't just, it's not just that they don't get away with anything. They're destroyed for nothing. I don't, I don't think we should. I don't think that should be acceptable to anyone. Lindsey Graham brought up the possibility of maybe taking some action on this when it comes to Hillary Clinton. Play clip one. Any American out there who did what Secretary Clinton did, you'd be in jail now. The question I want to know is, does anybody other than me believe that? I don't ask you to believe me. We let Mueller look at all things Trump related to collusion and otherwise. Somebody needs to look at what happened on the other side and find out if the FBI and the DOJ had two systems. One supporting the person they wanted to win, and one out to get the person they wanted to lose. Some of these people have been fired for lying, and it's now time to have a special counsel look in all things 2016, not just Trump. How about some accountability for the other side? I can already tell you that the plan is to let, for example, McCabe, who was acting FBI director, who is clearly a Hillary partisan, and a bad guy. Uh, let let him just fade off and into the sunset and not bring any charges against him. He lied under oath. I thought lying under oath was, was a heinous crime. I thought you should never lie under oath because you're going to go to prison for it. But not if you're somebody that was playing for the right team. Uh, this has gotten to the point where it is not just too obvious to ignore, but I think it's too dangerous for us to ignore. I think that the willingness of the Democratic Party to use the legal system as a weapon against their political allies has to be met with a commensurate response. And yeah, that might mean a special counsel on Hillary Clinton. Why not? We just found out this past week 
based on the Lisa Page closed-door testimony that the decision was made very high up in Loretta Lynch's DOJ that they were never, ever going to bring charges against Hillary Clinton. didn't matter what they found in the investigation. The investigation was all for show. It was a sham. We just found that out. So since that now is a matter of record, that now is a, is a function of testimony from somebody who's under oath and who would know, what else can we find out? I'm hoping that President Trump is holding back, for example, the declassified FISA application or the declassification of the FISA application on you know, Carter Page and, and more of the Russia investigation origin documents. I hope that he's hanging back on that in case they try to pull some nonsense with the Mueller probe, in case they decide that they're going to, even though they don't have any charges against him, they're going to take some kind of, of action meant to undermine his presidency, make him seem like he's a bad guy, uh, because what he should do in that case is unleash what he know what what he has access to as a commander in chief about what happened there, and I I really do believe that it would be a jaw dropping moment if we found out how much these guys uh, in the most sensitive positions in law enforcement in our government I think it would be a jaw dropping for us to find out just how much they were abusing their power and going after Trump. I, re- I really do. I think that this is one of those moments that it will be hard for us to take in at first. So, uh, because it'll, it'll be so overwhelming and so obvious and, and it'll be hard to believe even when we have the evidence we know we should believe it. I, I want Trump to release that information. I want Trump to put it out there, but he may be, uh, he may be holding back on it until he needs it. You know, it's essentially the bazooka he's keeping, the media bazooka that he's keeping in his pocket in the case that he might need something uh, to talk about. So, you know, I want to discuss presidents with you coming up here and presidential candidates, because you've got some some very. Uh, hmm. How should we say it? You got some real losers on the Democrat side. They're already in the mix. And, and I just start to think more and more about how. I think that no, people don't even really know what they want in a president anymore. I think the rules have changed about what's acceptable for a president. And what certainly the Democrats and the left desires in a president is now kind of fuzzier than it's ever been. They kind of just want an emotion, not a person. Your campaign was shaken up in the early days by multiple reports, negative reports of how you've treated some of your staff in the past. Your answer to that, which you've given many times, many people have asked about this, you said, look, I can be too hard. What's too hard? Well, to me, if you are a boss, you have to have high standards, and that is what I have always had. And that doesn't mean it's a popularity contest all the time. And so I've had high standards for myself, high standards for our staff, and mostly I'm going to have high standards for the country. But one can always do better, and that means you want to be sure that you are listening to people. Um, if you know they felt uh, that something um, was unfair or they felt bad about something, but I still think that you have to demand good product. Uh, when you're out there on the world stage and dealing with people like Vladimir Putin, yeah, you want someone who's tough. You want someone that demands the answers and that's going to get things done. Yeah, 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 yeah that's, that's Klobuchar running for president there. And I wanted to really get to the end because 
you know, you gotta you gotta have her hear it or her say it. You gotta hear it from her. Uh, that's right. She she's gonna take care of Putin. Maybe she'll throw a hairbrush at Putin. You know, maybe she'll make Putin eat salad with a with a, a hairy comb and then make him clean it off in front of her. <laughs> it's so gross. It is so gross. Amy Klobuchar famously, famously abusive to her staff. Uh, nasty, nasty person when it comes to those working for her. And I always think it's it's so it's so cute when people, after they've been accused by a lot of their former staff of being uh, really um, terrible to work for, and then they'll get some group to come forward that is all looking to advance themselves, most likely. I'm sure some of them probably think that she's actually nice. You know, usually a mean boss isn't mean to everybody. It's very rare. That's why and usually mean people aren't mean to everybody. So it's really the absence of mistreating any employee. I'm sorry, the presence of treat mistreating any employees is all you have to find. Because if you're mistreating any employees, then you're a bad employer. Uh, you're always going to be able to find usually some people who feel like you weren't that bad, you know, and this is kind of a version of, you know, even even Hitler loved his dog, right? I mean, people always, everyone has some kind of level. I think that's a Bill Maher quote, by the way. But, you know, so people have some level of humanity and, and kindness, even the very, very worst people. So just because somebody isn't terrible to everybody doesn't mean they're not a terrible boss. But I was thinking about this a little bit today because... With uh, with Klobuchar and this huge group of of all the different candidates out there, and Beto, who just like I just want the whole country to hold hands, close their eyes, and feel the power of the power from within, where your power center is. Uh, you know, with with all this stuff that's going on, I think it's fair to ask, what do we really want in a president? You know, I used to say that what we want and then look, I'm, I'm going to support Trump for reelection, obviously. So it's not it's not that important to think about this in the immediate term on the Republican side. But I, I do think that it shifted somewhat. I think that our perception of what a great commander in chief would be is very different uh, these days from what it would have been when I was at least a young kid, um, you know, in, in the era of Reagan. I feel like now you you want somebody who is. A fighter on social media. You want somebody who is very much, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what the Democrats really want, and I think the Democrats don't really know what they want. They want they want a set of policies, but is is character even important anymore? Does character matter? How can we, as a country, given recent presidential choices, how can we say that we think that character is an important presidential trait? I mean the. The Clinton machine was premised on the eradication of character as something that is necessary for anyone to run for for public office. Um, I just I think it's interesting. We we've changed on this without really stopping to think about how much we've changed and how you know and 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 what we've changed. Um, and that's just that's what I get from the the Klobuchar fiasco where. Why does she think? Because she's a Midwestern senator and maybe she'll be able to bring. This is just a, a profile raising exercise for her. I mean, I'm not going to say it's to sell more books because I don't think she has. Actually, everybody these days has a book. 
You know what also bothers me? You know, I'm in a mood. It's a Friday. I'm going to let it rip. Why is everyone okay with other people writing books under their name? And why do I? You know, there are a few areas where I'm an odd duck. And I know it. And, and I get shouted down by people, even people I like and respect a lot. They think that I'm totally crazy. But, you know, these, these politicians, they have these books that they put out. And this has become commonplace. A politician put out a book. And I'm not saying none of them write them. But I think almost none of them really write them. Maybe some of them consult and they work with the ghostwriter. Why isn't that plagiarism? You know, this is where, you know, and, and see, this is on, on the issue of plagiarism and, and books on getting rid of recruiting. Remember, rec- I'm fine with college athletics recruiting as long as you're not going to change the academic standards for the admission. So if you can find a straight A student who's also, you know, a world class defensive lineman, Great. You know, take them for your school. I'm, I'm not saying you, you can't try to find. I'm just saying you the, the, the system as it works right now where you can override the overall academic system um, in order to get a certain kind of athlete. I think that that's crazy. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, there are some other areas where I'm I'm alone. John, what was I talking about just a second ago? I just lost my own train of thought on that one where what was I saying? I'm, I'm crazy on. Anyway, there's there's a lot of th- oh writing books, writing books that that it's okay if you pay someone else to write a book under your name, that somehow that's not a not a big deal. I, I don't know why we think that this is a normal thing to do. If I kept publishing editorials under my name that I paid someone else to write for me, wouldn't people think that I was not a very good writer and that's a strange thing, a strange thing to do? Um, and, and this is where we get into the conversation also about. What's going on with this school system, uh, the school system scamming, the emission scams, where I take the point of view that there's a lot of very shady reasons that people get into school. There's a lot of ways that people gain the system. So why are we so outraged right now that this particular system, which is more brazen than others, I admit that, but that this particular system uh, existed in the way that it did? I just, I would note, this is all... This is all where people break from me and say, oh, Buck, you just don't really understand what's going on. You don't understand what's going on. But I think I do understand. I think I know what's up. I think I know what time it is. What kind of president do you want? Well, maybe you want a president who just, like, connects and, you know, was in a punk rock band, but also was, like, the hunky au pair on the Upper West Side that everybody wanted to hang out with. Uh, yeah, he was an au pair. True story. He was an au pair on the Upper West Side in New York City. So Beto, Beto and I were in New York at the same time. Uh, but speaking of Beto and what you want for a president, if you're a Democrat, what we want is for Trump to win another term. Although I would like to have a little more focus from the Trumpster on enacting the agenda. I, I think the Trumpster lacks a little bit of focus. Uh, I know he's got a lot of the Russia collusion thing drags around him. And there's a lot of stuff. I know I'm not, I'm not trying to be unfair to the man, but the agenda is not nearly as as uh, enacted as I would like to be at this point. But this was this was interesting. Uh, this was from a Reuters profile today on Beto. Uh, quote, arguably, there has been no better time to be an American politician rebelling against business as usual. There is no indication that O'Rourke himself ever engaged in the edgiest sorts of hacking activity. He was a hacker breaking into computers or writing code that enabled others to do so. Still, 
It's unclear whether the United States is ready for a presidential contender who, as a teenager, stole long-distance phone service for his dial-up modem, wrote a murder fantasy in which the narrator drives over children on the street and mused about a society without money. You know, I, I've, I'm in a weird spot here with some of this stuff, folks, because I've been saying, you know, you, you can't hold against people stuff that they said 10 years ago. And and I, I agree. And I'm not saying Beto should be fired from a job or that he should be kicked out of the public square for this stuff. But a murder fantasy where the narrator's running over children on the street, that's a weird, that's a weird move. Um, the these long distance cell phone service thing, that's nothing. I mean, everybody who's my age, you guys all remember Napster and uh, what was it? And LimeWire, which everyone was just downloading all kinds of stuff, including a lot of naughty stuff. Uh, a lot of, I was always astonished at how much, how much porn was on the shared Amherst College server. And I, of course, never watched any of it, but there was all this porn on the server. And I guess they just didn't know how to like get it all out. But people would, would upload stuff to the to the college server that was Portagra. This is a lot this is earlier in the early days of the internet. And there was all kinds of stuff on there, you know, some really, really funky, funky stuff. Um, so anyway. Children on the street getting run over, society without money. I think Beto is kind of a weirdo. But a weirdo is no longer a problem when you're running for president. In fact, we've really changed the nature of what oppo research can be at this point. I mean, unless you have and Beto's DUI, people are going to point to that when he ran across the median and ran into another car. Uh, unless you killed somebody in something like that, which he did not. He did not severely injure anybody, including himself. But in, unless you're talking about a situation like that, just just doesn't move the doesn't move the needle. It's not going to prevent him from running. It's not going to prevent him from from possibly winning. So we we have we have very much changed. You know that 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 Amy Klobuchar could be known as a serial abuser of staff and to make people clean off the comb that she ate a salad with, which is still just the grossest thing. You know, it's, I don't know what it is about using a comb to eat your salad. Yeah, but, you know, find a spoon or a fork for heaven's sakes. It just strikes me as so gross. Uh, But Beto being a weirdo who was a hacker and wrote murder fantasies that where people were running over children, none of that's going to even, that's not even going to register, folks. We are in a a brave new world where, where weird and crazy seems kind of an asset. Hi, I'm Don Blankenship, candidate for U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. The politicians are running a lot of crazy ads. They blew up the coal mine and then put me in prison. Now they're running ads that say the coal mine blew up and I went to prison. There's no surprise there. But if you want jobs, if you want to end the drug epidemic and you want to protect the unborn, you need to vote for me. One of my goals as U.S. Senator will be to ditch cocaine Mitch. When you vote for me, you're voting for the sake of the kids. So that's Don Blankenship. And that's where the whole cocaine Mitch joke comes from, right? So when people, uh, some have asked me, Buck, why do you call him cocaine Mitch? And why are there all these memes about cocaine Mitch? Because it, it comes from this ridiculous ad from now failed Republican Senate candidate uh, Don Blankenship. Uh, so one, this gives us an opportunity uh, 
to play that ad so you can hear it again because it's just kind of fun. Cocaine Mitch, got to get rid of Cocaine Mitch. Uh, and then there's also a news reason for this, which is that Don Blankenship has sued, uh, not not a $12 million defamation lawsuit against the biggest media outlets in the country. Don Blankenship has filed a $12 billion $11 billion, a $12 billion defamation lawsuit against major media outlets. Now, they say it's or he says it's because dozens of news outlets and media personalities referred to him as a felon back in 2018. when He was running in the West Virginia primary. Now, Blankenship was the was the CEO formerly of Massey Energy, and he did have a little stint where he went to prison for a while. Um, but he was acquitted of all felony charges, turns out. So, I, look, I don't think he's got a $12 billion case, but I wonder if he won't get entirely laughed at a court all the merits based on that he's if he's not technically a felon and they're all calling him a felon, that's, that is the kind of thing that is actionable sometimes in a, in a defamation case. From what I understand, I mean, defamation is usually very hard to uh, to prove, especially if you're a public figure and you're running for office. Uh, and remember, you don't really prove it. You just kind of have to convince a jury. I mean, it's a civil issue. Um, but defamation can be very hard. The uh, cocaine Mitch thing is because Mitch McConnell and Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow, who I- I'm just, this is what Blankenship, Blankenship referred to her as, quote, a wealthy China person. That's what he said. And he referred to China people on in his ads. I mean, this guy is really out there. Uh, that that they owned a shipping company that McConnell and his wife were, were were tied to a shipping company, and somewhere in the shipping company, I think there was a cocaine seizure. And so he was saying that Mitch is tied. It's just crazy. And that that a guy who would accuse the speaker of the I'm sorry the uh, Senate Majority Leader of in any way being tied to drugs. I mean, there there are some people in the Senate who I could see maybe even decades ago being tied to drugs, probably not today. Uh, Mitch McConnell is not one of them. I think he's probably the most straight-edge guy that you would find in the Senate. Well, Mike Lee is a little more straight-edge, but Mitch McConnell's pretty straight-edge. I just think this whole thing's kind of funny. And now you know if I refer to cocaine Mitch... I am not, in fact, suggesting that he is the second coming of Pablo Escobar and has been part of some incredible plot to be the most powerful Republican senator of his generation. No, no, no. It was all a joke, a joke from this guy, Blankenship, who I'm sure I'm sure some of you know a bit about a bit more than I do. Um, But it's looking very unlikely that he will. I know this for sure. He's not going to get twelve billion dollars. I just wish I could see how they came up with that number. Not $5 billion, not $10 billion, $12 billion in a defamation lawsuit. Uh, very, very unlikely to see that. Keep in mind that there's a, there's a large $250 million defamation lawsuit by one of the students from Covington High School. I don't know how much money he's actually going to get, but um, it's, that's a lawsuit that they better take very seriously. Because I think he does have a case. I think he does have the ability to get damages from CNN. He's not a public person. They were uh, reckless in their reporting, along with other places, Washington Post. So he may be a very rich young man, which would be great. Maybe he'll start a 
conservative free speech foundation with his millions and millions that he is definitely owed. Got Jesse Kelly joining shortly, team. Stay with me. Special Friday treat for all of you listening. My friend, the, the, the tallest conservative man I've ever met, Jesse Kelly, is joining us now. He, he clocks in at, a, at, at 7'6", I think, but he's also a fantastic radio host and podcaster in his own right, host of The Jesse Kelly Show. He's down on uh, KPRC in Houston. That is his radio station. You can follow him on Twitter if you want to be highly amused. Mr. Kelly, great to have you. Six foot eight, Buck. It's six foot eight, but it's seven six if you count the ego. Exactly. There you go. That's what I always say. I'm six yeah. feet tall, but do you throw the hair in there on a good day? Six one, son. What's up? <laughs> so, 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 Jesse, tell me, uh, tell me a bit about your take on this, uh, on this college admission scandal that has rocked the nation. You must, you must watch this with a much bemusement. I do. Well, I mean, as you know, I, I'm pretty pretty highly educated. I don't like to rub my education in everyone's face, but I have almost three years of accredited community college credits. So I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make other people feel bad, but so I've, I've got, I've got some pelts on the wall, let's just say. And, and I look at this and all I do is laugh. Like I, I don't find it scandalous even, Buck. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't see what the big deal is. Rich people pay money to get their kids access to things that poor people don't get access to. That's called the history of the world. Yeah, yeah, I get it was a scam, and this kid didn't get in, or that kid didn't get in. But how is this any more scandalous than Harvard not letting Asian kids in? It's the same thing. That's what universities do. They screw some deserving kids over in the favor of the undeserving, and they do it for nefarious reasons. That's the college university system. I thought thought it was pretty amazing. I mean, I'm with you. I I can't get nearly as... I find it more kind of amusing and and telling than anything else. I mean, this is... I also have been saying on radio, this is not the only one of these scams in college. That There's no way that this is the only one of these. There's This has been an underground industry for, I'd say, the last, at least the last 10, maybe the last 20 years that nobody's really thought much about. Uh, so I'm sure that there's more of this. But when I've, I've said to people, you know, do we really want federal criminal charges against somebody for giving a check to the uh, you know, the, the men's swim team coach or something or the track and field coach. And people act like I'm I'm defending a mass murderer. They, they really get mad at me. I'm like, how dare you? The deserving spots. I'm like, the deserving spots go to they go to idiot kids whose parents donate buildings. They go to minorities that are a standard deviation in terms of their SATs and grades below the average for the class. They go to, uh, you know, they go to people for all kinds of reasons. And the whole athletic recruit thing, I would say, is subjective anyway. So, you know, I think it's kind of people freaking out about nothing, but they think that I'm the crazy person. Yeah, that's because people adhere to the old ways, and they don't realize that the the just how much awful things go on behind closed doors when it comes to universities. And you know what's funny? You brought it up about how this isn't the only one. I guarantee you 100% there are lots of people out there sweating bullets right now because they have done and or are doing the exact same thing only they didn't get busted they didn't get swept up in this one they were in different universities or doing different things and just they're just waiting for the shoe to drop this is what happens man kids who don't rate get into great colleges because he can uh, swing a baseball bat or or throw great passes that this is this is this is the university system 
And on top of that, we need to have a completely new discussion about the university system at all in the United States. Why does every kid feel like he has to go to college? There are a bunch of commie training camps at this point in time. I'm not going to push my kids for college. If you have something specific you want to go for, fine. But we have all these kids graduating in four years with $100,000 in student loan debt, and they're bigger morons than they were going in with no life skills. There's actually a piece from Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute that I read today where they gave, and this was at elite schools, they gave students a basic American history test when they entered as freshmen and then gave them the same, uh, the same test when they left as seniors. They did better as entering freshmen. So essentially all the, all the drinking and all the weed smoking for four years did not, in fact, make them smarter. Yeah, of course. You know, I went to college for one year when I got out of high school, like a real college, not the community college version. And I got a 0.0 grade point average my first semester. I drank and partied like you would not believe. I was easily way more dumb when I left than when I got there. I did not get any knowledge about the real world until the Marine Corps, until I actually started reading books and things like that. There, there is an endless world out there of knowledge that you can get where you don't have to spend $25,000 a year to get it. I think you raise a, a, a very interesting point, which I know doesn't surprise you, Jesse, because you probably recognize yeah, all yeah. of your points is very interesting. Uh, but <laughs> we are at a time when you have greater access and easier access to information, to self-teaching, to learning about things on your own than at any point in human history. It's not even close, right? I and mean, there's no question. If you want to nerd out sometime, and I don't know if Jesse would ever do this, guys, but those of you listening, if you want to nerd out, you can watch. There are whole lectures by revered Yale professors online that you can watch. I mean, there's whole courses that they put up for free. You can watch this stuff. For you free. can learn. You can see all the stuff that they're doing. This is all free. And yet while that's going on, the price of four-year college uh, tuition goes up and up and up. I think that these places are operating kind of like quasi-government-backed cartels, and there's just so many bloated administrators and you got a lot of professors that are teaching two hours a week. I mean, I, I think there's a scam on that side of it that nobody ever focuses on. Oh, yeah. And, and you're right about the wealth of knowledge at your fingertips. I mean, I've got two sons. They're eight and ten. And a million times a day now, you know, they'll want to know about this or that. And since shockingly, I know as it may be to your listeners, I'm not all knowing. And we don't know. We stop. Okay, let's stop. Go to the computer. Let's Google it. Let's watch a YouTube video. Let's figure it out. There's no question you have that is not a quick Google search away from finding the answer to. And endless amounts of reading material, the, the, the knowledge is out there. You don't have to pay and go do it. And I'll tell you something else. We're going to see a flip to this system one of these days soon. The, the corporations, the businesses in this country are going to figure out quickly. You don't have to wait for a kid to be 22. Talent is talent. Go snatch up a high school graduate Make him sign a contract that he's going to stay for so many years and give him the on-the-job training he needs right in your place and skip the whole university racket. I don't think that four-year college degrees are are worth as much in actual skills as our society pretends that they are. I, I just think that they are a, cred a credentialing system, and when they're trying to sort people out from each other, they, they set this bar up. But I also would note that the bar because so many more people are going to four-year undergraduate schools, now the bar keeps getting higher. And now you got people that are supposed to get advanced degrees, master's degrees, all this, you know, MBAs, JDs, all this other stuff. So I think it's kind of out of control. But Jesse, I need to, I need to ask you, because you are a Texan and, and not far from uh, ground zero of Betomania. Uh, what, what, what is your take on 
the man, the the myth, the emo songwriter, Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> well, look, let me let me preface this by saying I can't stand him. I cannot stand his voice. I don't like watching him speak. I don't like anything about Beto O'Rourke. So everybody save your hate mail. Beto O'Rourke is a phenomenal candidate, an absolute superstar, and somebody that Republicans should fear a lot more than they do. He is the next Obama. You can laugh at these morons doing their BETO songs and things like that. Have you seen any Elizabeth Warren songs or Kamala Harris songs? That's the exact kind of idiocy that Obama could inspire in people. He came within three points of beating Ted Cruz in a year where Greg Abbott beat his opponent by double digits. The guy is a tireless worker. He's going to have Obama behind him. He's got national name ID. He can raise money. His family has money. He, he's not going to beat Trump if the economy stays this way. Nobody can. But you watch out for this guy. He is going to be trouble for us in the future. Wow. You, th- you think he can make it all the way through? Oh, I think he's the nominee. Uh, in fact, I've been calling him as the Democrat nominee for six, seven, eight months. He was about a month into his Senate run, and I was the first one to call it. He came out hard anti-gun in Texas, which means you're not really running to win in Texas. You can't do that. But I knew right then he was running for president. And I'm telling you, he is going to be a contender. He's going to be the nominee. Huh. Jesse Kelly, man, <laughs> dropping a marker here on this one. Not messing around. Really saying that Beto's... I, 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 I said this yesterday, and, and you know we had um, our mutual friend Raheem Kassam on, and he takes your your a version of your point of view at least where where he agrees that he's while he's goofy he is formidable and you know in the era of AOC another politician that I know you must have some thoughts on in the era of AOC uh, being a, being a goofy ignoramus seems to be an asset. Yeah, look, he understands very much the 2019 Democrat. Uh, voter. He does on his website. He, he did his big campaign launch, launched his website. He has merchandise for sale and not a single policy position. The man knows exactly what he's doing. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And he is able to, for whatever reason, just because you can't see it and I can't see it, for whatever reason, he is able to inspire some kind of loyalty and enthusiasm in people that makes them want to lay down in traffic for him. That's the same stuff Obama used to do. You remember we used to make fun of all those idiots that would go to Obama's speeches and they'd pass out because they were so excited and all that stuff? That's Beto O'Rourke. I'm telling you, fear this guy. Yeah, and the left the left wing mind these days really does. That is what they want. They don't want someone to come in oh, yeah. who's a technocrat who has sound policies and ideas. Even if I don't like them, at least they're sensible. I mean, they don't want someone like Howard Schultz who's going to say, you know, we can't actually tax millionaires at 90 percent and expect us to have any kind of product, uh, you know, productive economy. Uh, they don't want him. They want somebody they can pass out at rallies and that they can think is some kind of a messiah. So, Jesse, I think I think your analysis of this one is sound. Before we let you uh, get back to all things Texas, uh, Kamala Harris. By the way, is it Kamala or Kamala? Because I hear it both ways. And I, I feel like since you're so close with her, you would know. Well, obviously, as everybody knows, we're super tight. I mean, I'm sure she has a crush on me, too. I mean, we're just not talking about it. I call her Kamala or K, you know, for short. But, I mean, everyone else can call her what, call her what they want. That's just her and I and our kinship. But how's, how's, her, how's her campaign coming along, you think? I just I think she's well, too boring to win. I, I, well, she's clearly the media darling, though, is the thing, or at least she was before Beto got in. I think he's going to take that from her. And that was going to carry her far. You saw them swooning over her buck. They're going shopping with her. We had media members bragging about helping Kamala Harris pick out a new jacket to buy. Uh, so 
that alone is going to get her a long way. Look, she does, I joke around a lot, but she does have the look. She speaks really well because of her background. She's, she has a lot of things the other candidates don't. I mean, Elizabeth Warren's a terrible candidate. Klobuchar is a terrible candidate. The, the Democrats have some really bad candidates. I actually think Kamala's a very good one. And had Beto not gotten in, I'd have said she's going to be the nominee. But we'll see now. What happens when Kamala asks you to be a part of her campaign, Jesse? Will, will you, will you for, for your fondness of Kamala, will you, will you sell out your country? Absolutely. In a heartbeat. I mean, the heart wants what the heart wants, Buck. I can't, I can't do anything about that. He, he's an honest man, folks. Jesse Kelly, the one and only KPRC down in Houston. Listen to him on radio there. You can follow him on the Twitter. Look for the Jesse Kelly Show. Jesse, my friend, great to have you. Have a fantastic weekend. Be good, brother. An interesting story today to put in the free speech wars category. Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn was fired by Disney some months back because of offensive tweets that were unearthed of his that made light of pedophilia and rape from uh, a decade old. I think they were a decade old. Um, so this is a guy who they, they did the whole tweet deep dive thing and they were able to dig up some stuff that was bad enough on him that he was then fired from his job. Well, it turns out that now after the interceding or intervening months, he is back on. They have rehired him. And he's also attached to the upcoming Suicide Squad sequel for Warner Brothers. And after that, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 will commence. I thought Guardians of the Galaxy 1 had some good stuff. It was a little a little uh, too a little too noisy on screen for my taste. It just was a little too much stuff going on sometimes. But I, th- I thought there were some good things in Guardians of the Galaxy. I am a I do like Chris Pratt. I think he's does a good job. I liked him in Parks and Rec. I like him now as a, as a leading man. He does a good job. Um, Suicide Squad was an unbelievably bad movie, though. Suicide Squad was a shock because how hard can it be to make a movie that, you know, how hard can it be to make a movie about that kind of superhero stuff that's at least watchable? I'm, I'm not saying it has to be Citizen Kane, but can it just not be horrifyingly terrible? Is, is, that, is that really asking too much? Apparently the answer is yes. It is. It is asking. It is asking too much to have a reasonable viewing experience uh, with Suicide Squad. I mean, Will Will Smith in it was was terrible, and anyway, it just was bad, man. The whole thing was bad. Anyway, enough of my movie reviews. The, the, on the free speech issue, you know, now we're going to start to see this happen, and I wonder how we should react to it because he's a leftist who has been reinstated by. Disney, which is a liberal-run uh, company. I mean, the, the executives at Disney are liberals. And, and he is a leftist, and he is now reinstated in this. And so does that mean that the old model of apology and contrition and then you can keep your job and you can move forward in your life, is that coming back? Or is it only coming back for leftists? You know, there was such a, a, a frenzy, and it's, wor- it's been worse in the last 12 months than it's ever been in my lifetime. A frenzy of find something bad that someone said and destroy them, destroy their livelihood, you know, destroy their reputation. There's been so much of it that I think that the left realized 
they were going to be in a in a, a mode of self-consumption unless they tried to figure something else out. But they didn't want to give up the standard that they had put in place because it's so useful for trying to crush conservatives. It's so useful for them to weaponize against their political opponents. Now we're seeing a, a high-profile leftist get a second chance. I, I think that this will just be used to say, see, look, the next conservative that they go after, they'll say he wouldn't even apologize, and they'll hope that we take the bait and start apologizing again because I still think they'll Prince Joffrey us. I think that if you're a conservative and and you say I'm really sorry for what happened, unless you, I mean, unless you are, I, I hate you know I've got some never Trumpers, some blue check never Trumpers that come after me and say, you know, you think you should never apologize. Obviously, if you stepped out of line, you know, you you, you should apologize. Um, that guy, Congressman Gates, you know what he publicly tweeted about about Michael Cohen and his wife and how maybe his wife would cheat on him when he's in prison. I mean, that's just out of line. That's just that's just not okay. And he apologized for it. And that's the right move. It wasn't the right move because the mob said he should apologize. It was the right move because it was a dirtbag thing to tweet and he knew it and he stepped back. I mean, he got a lot of heat and he stepped back. But, you know, that's that, that's when honor calls for an apology, when you should apologize for something. Um, not when you make a joke that is a little offensive or lands the wrong way. Not when you, you know, made comments 10 years ago that were politically incorrect. No, no, that's that's just caving to the mob. But we'll see if uh, John, did you see Guardians of the Galaxy 2? Yeah, I didn't see it either. I, I don't know. It's, it's a little it just looked, looked a little too noisy to me. I can't believe they're making Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And the best thing in Guardians of the Galaxy was the little the little tree, you know, root. Is it, or is it Groot or Root? I don't know. I guess it, Groot. Yeah, that was the best thing in Guardians of the Galaxy for me. I didn't like the raccoon as much as I wanted to, whatever his name is. I found him. Isn't that Bradley Cooper who does the voice for that too? Such a weird, what a weird call. Uh, you know, I learn something new every day. But we'll see where this goes in the free speech wars. The left will now start to take contrition from some on their own side. I wonder if they'll do it on the other side. Roll call coming up. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for Roll Call action, where I get to hear from all of you over the weekend. I am planning, I don't know about you, I'm planning on laying pretty low this weekend, going to try to regroup and recharge. Been quite a week, friends. A lot of stuff going on, a lot of things to handle. You know, sometimes it's just not your week. This week just wasn't my week. But we got good things to hear from all of you. Good things to read. That's fun. Matthew writes, Buck, as a trucker and managing a small trucking company, I welcome automation. There is a severe lack of drivers and the insane level of logging regulation we are under makes it very difficult to get loads moved in the time shippers desire. Just having a truck that can drive interstate and highways between cities while the driver sleeps would be a major benefit. That still leaves us skilled drivers to handle the difficult in city pickups and deliveries. Thanks to the great show, Shields High. You know, Matthew, see, this is this is why I always appreciate the expertise from this audience of people who really know these issues because they're living these issues or dealing with 
the reality of the challenges that we talk about on a, on a daily basis. And you raise a great point about essentially the ability to have drivers who would be, uh, it would be really a partially AI, uh, partially AI situation, but not entirely. So that way they could sleep overnight. And if they're on highways, you know, they could eliminate the need to stay up for highway driving, which is obviously a huge portion of interstate uh, trucking and travel in general. So, you know, you, you see, this is what we can't tell right now, which is how well the technology can be integrated and how people can continue to have jobs with the technology anyway. But you obviously have a good sense of that. And I think that's a very interesting, very interesting idea you have there, sir. Thank you. Amy writes, ha, the movie references Archimedes in Disney's Sword in the Stone. That was from yesterday. Also, thanks for not hammering my Senator Mike Lee for voting his principles. I like that someone in D.C. is willing to do that. Mitt Romney, however, does not have a constitutional foundation as shown by his governance. Feel free to take a swing. We all know he's a progressive and highly political. You know, Amy, I, I think that there are people that, that in the Senate who believe that what they did was trying to turn back uh, executive overreach. And, and, I, and there were definitely uh, good faith arguments about that. Yesterday, I was a little frustrated about it and probably a little more harsh across the board about the senators that voted in favor of the resolution of condemnation than I should have been. But you know, the, the president needs all the help he can get these days. And I do think that Republicans suffer from a bit of uh, of a of a grandstanding complex and a self-righteousness complex where when it's really important that they're all, you know, trying to run the ball up the middle together, some of them will say, no, I'm not going to because I'm so special. And that's not helpful. Uh, but Mike Lee, he may in fact sleep on a bed with sheets made from copies of the Constitution. I, if I found that out about Senator Mike Lee, it would not surprise me. I've interviewed Mike a bunch of times. Hasn't haven't interviewed him in a while though. I should probably try to get him on one of my shows. Adam, hello, Adam. On the Trump's first veto, it reveals for all that we have a single party establishment. Both party elites work only for themselves, and there's little if anything we can do without tremendous cost to ourselves. Dark times, shields high. Adam, the political elite is a real thing. There are certainly. Uh, real concerns about what can and should be done by those of us who have to live in a country where the laws are written by generally self-interested men and women. Uh, there has not been as much movement on the Trump agenda as I would have liked in these last two years. There's no question about that. Congress has played a role. I think a lack of focus from the White House or perhaps a focus on some of the wrong things has played a role. And now we are heading into a very, a very bitter election season with incredibly important consequences. Whether the country will be socialist or not is essentially what is at stake. And that's going to be a tough time to make the case. Well, you know, I don't really like socialism, but I wish Trump had followed through on even more of his campaign promises. I'm not sure that's going to be a, a sound way to approach it. So. I think you'll see a lot of Trump supporters willing and, and desiring to give him another four years. As for what the Republican Party will do, it is true, and you're seeing more of this lately, people repeating this, politicians will always disappoint you. They will always disappoint you, even the, even the good ones, even the ones who are trying because they are 
men and women. They are flawed. They have their own interests. And the system itself is such that I think it grinds down even the best men and women. I, I think that the swamp has a, a, a kind of toxic effect, and it, and it certainly weakens the backbones of many a member of Congress. Chuck, all right. Did you notice that the Spanish version says uh, Beto for all? And he sent me a link to something Beto O'Rourke. Chuck, I did not notice that. Uh, I, I did not see that, Chuck. Um, but you're, Beto is going to push a lot on the fact that he is uh, bilingual. He speaks Spanish. And that will certainly be something you're hearing a lot more of uh, or from him on. So there you go. Mark. Buck, the only thing better than Hillary doing single nasal breathing yoga is the Beto impression, followed by de Blasio Wilhelm. Even my nine-year-old lost it with the Hillary single nasal breathing yoga impersonation. Uh, thanks, Mark. I don't even remember. I, I mean, obviously, we've done a lot of Hillary stuff on the show. I don't know the, the single, single nasal. We got to, we got to. John, do you remember that? I don't Hillary single nasal breathing impression. I, I know I did it. I just can't remember what I did. Some days I'm, I'm overtaken by a bit of wackiness. That can kind of happen. Uh, tends to be more. I was going to say it tends to be more on Friday. I'm not even sure that's really true. Mary writes, Buck, you are right about recruiting for sports in college. Only a small amount, a small amount go on to go pro. The ones that don't need to be able to read and do well in school to have a career after college. It needs to start before college. It needs to start in school. Mary, people sometimes say, here's an unpopular opinion, and then they share an opinion that most people that they want to agree with and will agree with them on, you know, here's an unpopular opinion, folks. I really respect the Constitution, right? No, Buck, that's, that's not an unpopular opinion with the people you're talking to. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of media folks do that these days. My position on ending college athletics recruiting is, is, is legitimately an unpopular opinion. I mean, there are some people who agree with me, but they are few and far between from what I can see. And the editorial I wrote today in The Hill... People, um, I, I can tell a lot of people that, that commented on it didn't even read it. Uh, they, they just think there's kind of this like, oh, whatever, nerd. You know, what, you're such a nerd. Why do you not want sports? I, I, I never said we shouldn't have sports in college. I just think it's so funny that, that the, the culture is such that right now we're supposed to think it's normal that if you are a great water polo player, you should maybe get into Stanford even if you don't have great grades. Why? Who the heck cares about water polo? And for the really big sports teams, really football, basketball, maybe put a few others in there that do draw major crowds, that do get big NCAA ratings, I think that those students should be uh, treated as semi-pro athletes so that they would be essentially athletic academy admits and they would have still they would still have access to the same classes and everything else. But we should just be one, less exploitative of people in the, in the NCAA, which is what's going on right now. It's a multi-billion dollar business. And if one of these NCAA players, you know, takes a ham sandwich from a booster, we are all supposed to get so outraged that this kid who doesn't have any money and is an incredible athlete, you know, is, and, and that people are making a lot of money off of his skills. You know, I think that's a big problem. Um, but, but also... D3 schools recruiting is just ridiculous. And I don't care. I don't care. Anybody's because I went to a D3 school and it was bizarre. 
there, there was no reason for they were recruiting for teams. They had dozens of different teams. They're recruiting for the women's softball team. They're recruiting for the men's crew team. They're recruiting for the you know the the lacrosse team, men's and women's. I mean, why? Why can't we just have people show up? The school has sixteen hundred kids. Show up. Each sport has tryouts. They last a few days. You play your sport, and you know you go about your life, man. I, I you know I just why can't we do it the way they do it in high school? I, I don't understand. And people, and keep in mind that people are getting into the school that don't have the academic skills, and then they struggle. And there's a lot of bitterness from some of the, especially the big sport athletes who don't do well in school. But Mary, I appreciate you are the one of the very few that has reached out to me today, and that has uh, agreed with me on this at all. I, I got, I didn't get dragged on this today, but I definitely people were just, oh whatever, shut up, nerd. Sports are cool. It's like I played sports in college. I played sports in. I love sports. I'm not anti sports. I'm anti people cheating the system by being great fencers which is not exactly a highly competitive sport in this country. I hate to break it to you. Not a lot of people spending hours and hours a day doing fencing so that they can get into Harvard. Okay, I think that's just stupid. Uh, anyway, and then I think that the big sports at the big schools should be semi-pro. I, I, and, I don't, and I don't understand why this is such a, oh, oh and, and here's the crazy idea. Uh, and universities and colleges should first and foremost be concerned with educating students. Wow, isn't that insane? They're educational institutions. Maybe they maybe they shouldn't. I mean, you think of a lot of these schools and and you you name them and people immediately think football or basketball or you know whatever sport they're best known for. That, that's not what sh- that's not good. Schools should want to be known for being great great institutions of learning. And I know I do sound like a hall monitor nerd here like uh oh, schools want to be good learning but it's true. Schools are about learning. Why is this so hard for people to understand and believe? Schools are about learning. Anyway, see, I, 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 I've been thinking about this for a long time, but the Amer- American culture does not want to agree with me. And, and telling people that, you know, Texas Tech is going to have a great football team, even if they don't break academic standards for students and recruit like a professional team, they don't want to hear that. I mean, they'd still have great football. They'd still have great football games to watch. What, what's the difference? Uh, but people, you know, people don't want to hear what Buck has to say on this one, except the ones who want the truth. We'll be right back. And we're back with Roll Call Part 2 on our Friday show here. The way kick off the weekend, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed hanging out with me today here in the Freedom Hut on the Buck Sexton Show. You know, it'd be fun one day to just do like a third hour where I get to just be one of those radio hosts who's like, hey, bringing you the smoothest hits circa 1993, you know, and just like play the music and be the guy who, you know, the original on air. Right, John, isn't that how like radio, that's what people used to do. And then talk radio started really in the, well, I forget when it was. I should, someone should write a book about the radio industry because there's really no place to go to. Are there books about the radio industry? Really? Oh, okay. We'll see. That's not something I've ever seen. So I'd have to learn about this. Like people bring up uh, Bob Grant, and I'm like, I don't know who Bob Grant was. Am I supposed to know who Bob? I mean, I know he's a radio host, but I don't know anything other than that. So I got to I got to learn some of these things. Uh, let's see. We have Aaron. Co- college sports need to be suspended for ten years to give everyone involved time to find a new career. Afterwards, it can be restored on a completely non-commercial volunteer basis. No paid coaches, 
No athletic scholarships, no broadcast of games, no charge for admission. Um, Aaron, you know, that's a pretty radical take, but I can, you know how I feel about this. I think that college sports in general are completely out of control and that everyone needs to get a grip. And this is just, it's just too much at this point. Like it, it needs to not be what it is. Um, and there's a lot of complexity to it. It's different at the D1, the D3 level. I, I think that, you know, athletic scholarships, if you're going to do the uh, semi-pro league in the university, call them uh, scholar or, or, you know, sports academy admits. So people that are there primarily for sports, but also are, are being um, taught and going into class. I just think there are ways to structure it that are different. You know, think about it this way, my friends. I mean, our university system is really based on the European university system, let's put this out there. Yeah, Oxford has sports clubs. You know, there's a soccer club team and there's you know, rowing teams and there's, but Oxford and Cambridge don't have a few dozen highly recruited, highly competitive sports programs that have enormous uh, stadiums that they play in and, you know, ten, tens of millions of dollars on facilities. No. No, they, they don't have that, and it's okay. They still have lots of sports leagues in the country, and you know I think people increasingly should, if you want to pursue, first of all, if you want to pursue professional sports, then there's a lot of argue, there's a lot of argument be made that, with the exception of football, you really want to do it by the time you're 18. You're basically ready to go pro by 18. So, and in tennis, for example, it's a lot earlier than that. I just think it needs a, a, a rethink, and you know that's such a big system. There's so many people that make money off it. Nobody really wants to to change it, but I I think I'm right on this one. I, I know that I'm I'm a little bit of a sports uh, flat earther, but I'm telling you the Earth is flat. I'm telling you this is on this issue. Don't don't quote me. Oh my gosh, this is like media matters. Buck Sexton's a flat earther. No, no, I just meant I was taking the analogy further. Darn it, Joey. Big fan of your radio show. I hear you are a dog lover. I have a Belgian Shepherd, a Tervuren, best dog ever. What do you think about the breed? Uh, well, Joey, thank you so much for being a fan of the show. I do absolutely love dogs. Uh, I think dogs are one of the great joys in life. Uh, I think that dogs are great companions. And if I had a more set schedule and a little bit more time and resources to devote to it, I would get a dog in a heartbeat. I, I do plan on getting a dog one day. As as for Belgian Shepherds, if they are the dog I think they are, which I think people sometimes confuse with uh, Belgian Malinois, but I'd, I'd have to look up the specific breed. Um, but I'm sure Shepherds are usually great dogs. Team, that's going to be it for the show today. Thank you so much for listening. Really pleased to have a great weekend. Rest up. Take care of yourself. We'll talk Monday. Shields high.